Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail, and this week we have Farah Jazani, who's the Founder and Chief Chai Officer of One Stripe Chai, which is um, a Portland-based chai company. I personally love Portland because I went to college there, so it's a place near and dear to my heart. But also, I love chai. Who doesn't love chai? And I'm excited to go into just the story of of this company, uh, how the last few years have gone, and just... I'm, I don't know. I'm always fascinated with uh, with new, t- like not new types. Chai's been around for obviously like centuries, but new beverage companies, especially ones that uh, that have such cool traditions associated with them. But Farah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat today. Absolutely. So first, uh, why don't you give us a little bit about sort of your story, how you started a chai company, all that jazz. How did it begin? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, If you asked 15-year-old me uh, what I'd be doing one day, I would definitely never even imagine that I would own a chai company. That would just be the most random thing ever. Um, So before I was working in chai, I guess, um, I was living in New York City. I was working at a small consulting company, doing kind of like corporate America. And of course, you know, realized at some point that I hated it. Um, and I wanted to be my own boss. Um, my parents have really instilled entrepreneurship in uh, my sisters and I. And so it was something that I was itching to do. I just didn't know what the best avenue was. Um, and around that time, I was getting very interested in specialty coffee. That's when you were kind of seeing like, Stumptown pop up and, you know, La Colombe. And um, suddenly your, you know, almond milk latte is like $8. And I was so intrigued by why this was the case, being that, you know, coffee is a commodity, it's a bean. And so why is it more expensive when I get it from one place versus like when I get Folgers, which is like super, super cheap? Um, What's causing, you know, what does specialty really mean? What does craft mean? What's justifying this cost? What's happening in the supply chain? And then on top of that, I just really love the idea of coffee shops bringing people together. So it was kind of like a dual thing. I quit my job. I was getting really inspired by a lot of coffee shop owners I was meeting and roasters. And I decided to, on a whim, go to Portland, Oregon and, you know, spend a summer there. Uh, I had never been there. I didn't know anybody there. And I figured if I spend the summer here, it's a great time to, you know, maybe like learn how to barista and like talk to a bunch of coffee like roasters and maybe get some background on like roasting and like what's really happening here. Um, and so I was doing that and I kind of spent the summer of I think 2015 um, out in Portland and I very quickly realized that I did not want to open up a coffee shop and I love drinking coffee, um, but I don't have a I don't have anything, nothing, there's nothing, I don't feel like it relates to my life in any way. Um, My parents didn't drink coffee. Um, It's just not something that's like near and dear to my heart. And I was, it was funny because I never ordered chai at coffee shops um, because I was, my mindset was always, why am I going to pay for chai when I can make it at home? It's probably going to taste better. Um, And I think chai was becoming a little popular because of Starbucks at that time. And so I remember being, you know, in Portland, the heart of specialty coffee, a place where I know that everyone's putting a lot of work. I I think the cost is totally justified. There's so much work from like, you know, sourcing and the farm side all the way to like 
the barista actually like grinding to a certain like amount and, you know, the pressure and temperature and everything like to make sure you get the perfect, you know, shot of espresso. Um, and so I remember going to, I was at, I don't remember where, but it was a really well-known um, coffee shop. And I was like, well, they must have the most amazing chai. Like this is the time to order chai because I know that they put so much intention into their coffee. Their chai must be amazing. And I ordered a chai latte. Um, and I just remember when the barista put it down, he kind of stopped for a second and grabbed a shaker. I think it was like nutmeg or cinnamon and just completely doused the entire cup. And I was like, why did he, what, why did he do that? Um, then I sat down and took a sip and instantly I was like, oh, it's because this tastes like nothing. This, this actually just tastes like nothing. And that kind of like, got me thinking about why is chai this drink that, you know, like a billion people on the other side of the world drink multiple times a day? Um, why is it so poorly represented in America? Um, even at places that are so careful about, you know, putting intention into their products. It almost kind of felt like coffee was a star and chai was a line item that needed to be on the menu. Um, and that was when I kind of realized that the reason why is because chai is traditionally made on a stovetop. Um, in a pot, you're boiling milk, tea, water, spices, sweetener all together. Um, so your tea has to be strong enough to stand up to all those things. Um, and coffee shops just don't have that. They Most coffee shops won't have a kitchen. Um, they have an espresso machine with a steam wand. And so what they need is a very quick way to kind of churn this drink out and um, using just their using just their steam wand. Um, so that's where concentrates and powder mixes come in. You can mix that easily with milk, quickly steam it up, you have a chai latte, you're good to go. The question was, how do we make a really, really good chai concentrate? That is, you know, innately not very traditional because it the type of drink it the type of uh, medium it is. Um, but how do we make it taste really good? How do we bring single origin tea here? So like you know, how do we make sure we're using the right tea? How do we make the spices stand out? How do we how do we bring a little bit of like, you know, quote unquote authenticity to this product? And so that's that's where that's where we started um, as a completely B two B company. Interesting. I will. So, I, I as. I, I used to work in coffee, which is a fancy way of saying before I was a journalist, I was a barista in New York. Um, and uh, I do think that, like, you're, you're right on in that, like, for every specialty coffee shop you go to, and it's not only chai, it's pretty much they think about the beans. And then, like, they might have, I feel like there are one or two tea companies that uh, co that coffee shops opt for. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good, and I won't name which ones. And there's also the same with, like, um, chocolate. Like, if you, if you want to, like, there are all these issues where, like, as I've noticed just over the years is that like they focus on making sure they have the highest quality coffee, but literally nothing else. And I found that to be, I think that's an interesting thing that so many, and it's hard because it's a, it's a difficult business just for, in terms of margins, but makes a lot of sense that to, to focus on the chai part of things. Like, so how did, how did the B2B business sort of go about what, how did you learn about sourcing chai so that it would work for, for coffee shops? Yeah. So so it went kind of into like, what is chai made up of? Like, what what do you put inside of a concentrate? One, it was really important to me that we were sourcing tea from the source. If we're walking to a coffee shop and you're talking about, hey, we have single origin like coffee from all these different origins and 
and we're, we're paying more to make sure that we're getting them straight direct from source, then our tea also has to be the same. Um, there's something interesting about tea that's used in, and I'm going to go back to something you said about chai being centuries old. Contrary to popular belief, chai is not centuries old. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry about that. No, it's totally fine. (laughs) It's totally fine because this is, you could walk, you could walk up to, so you could, my parents maybe didn't even make that connection. Like, How new is it? We, (laughs) so if you think about it, so tea was never, tea is not native to um, India. Um, it grew wild in certain parts of like Northern, like Northeast India and like Assam and stuff. Um, but when the British, whereas, you know, when India was a British colony, this is like, I'm talking like early 1800s, um, mid 1800s, there was, you know, everyone in Britain loved tea, the breakfast teas, you know, that's, that's the, that's what everybody loves. But around that time, um, all the tea, cause tea doesn't grow in Britain either, um, came from China, and China had a monopoly on tea, and so China could charge whatever they wanted, and that was super hard for you know Britain because then they just they were like we're hooked on this product, but it's so expensive, um, and but we can't make it ourselves because we don't have the right you know temperature and whatnot. But there's this colony that we have. It's huge. And there's some wild tea growing there. So can we just grow more there? And so there, there's there's a lot of like stories behind it. But apparently there was like a botanist that got into like mainland China and he stole a bunch of plants um, of Camellia sinensis, which is the main the plant that tea grows from. Um, and then they started creating plantations in India. Um, so mostly in like Assam, which is northeastern India, then Darjeeling, which is a little farther west, and then like the Nilgiris in the south. Um, and so there's a few like tea producing parts of India. And I mean, this was, Indians weren't drinking tea. This was this was tea growing for the British. And it was, you know, they could charge whatever they want. They had really cheap labor. Um, and so it was like this really cool solution for them. Um, but then slowly towards, I think the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were like, well, we also have this like huge customer base, (laughs) so we should try to sell it to them. And they started instilling, you know, uh, mandatory tea breaks, um, for the workers. So now if you're like a worker working in a factory where you're probably not really getting a break for anything, but suddenly you're getting these tea breaks and you're kind of thinking of, tea being this very elite thing because that's what the British drink, maybe like the wealthy Indians, um, you you start drinking it and tea has caffeine in it. So now suddenly people are hooked um, and Indians could probably only afford the very cheapest um, type of tea, like the fannings, like the ground stuff. Um, and then also the British in a really great marketing move as they were bringing, you know, doing the whole railroads, railroad system in India, started setting up all these kind of like chai stops where they were kind of funding these entrepreneurs, like they're calling chai wallas, to start making like their own versions of chai. And that's where you see like those like epic pictures of like people pulling chai and like um, doing all different uh, recipes and I, I I don't know the reason why, like, where, like, the milk and spices come in. Maybe it's just, like, Indians being Indian and saying, like, we got to add some spice to this. This doesn't taste good. But that, that's kind of how, like, modern day, like, masala chai kind of came to be. Um, 
And so what also happened around that time in, in tea production is that they started all full leaf tea. Black tea is called orthodox tea. Um, but that's pretty expensive. And so they started a new process of tea called CTC. It's a cut tear curl method. It's these huge rollers that kind of roll like the not so high grade tea um, into this very powdery-ish blend. And that tea has no flavor notes. Like you're not, you're not going to be like, this tastes like strawberries. Um, you're going to be like, this tastes like tea. Uh, it's very malty. It's robust. It can stand up to being boiled. It can stand up to being boiled with milk and sugar and spices. And CTC is what you predominantly use when you make chai. Um, that's how you get that very dark kind of like brown red color. And so while we were kind of doing R&D, I was like, we got to use the CTC because I can tell when I look at other concentrates that they're not using the right, they're not using the right tea. Um, it's probably because they just don't know. And the only reason I know is because when I look at my mom's cupboard, our tea isn't like this full leaf, beautiful tea. It's something else. And so that process kind of started, I think, in the mid 1900s. So I would say chai became maybe like a very like day to day drink in India in like the mid 1900s. So it's not very old at all, um, which is very cool. And like something that something I think that was at that time, I was looking around at other chai companies that were working in food service and supplying to coffee shops. And I realized that no one really looked like me. No, no one really like was everyone was kind of like chai. It's a centuries old like drink and like, but I was like, I don't know if you really know. And it, I kind of felt empowered to be like, maybe like this is like a place where we can create a product that's better but also have some education around it. So our customers can learn really about like the intention and like more information about this drink as they're drinking it. Um, and so that's how we started as like a B2B business. Uh, my idea was that if one coffee shop is looking for this, then I'm sure there's a million other coffee shops that are just looking for a better product. They just haven't found one. Um, what are you going to do if you know, it's not your, it's not your fault if you're a coffee shop and there just aren't any options around, you know, um, if the best you can find is like, meh, then you're just going to have to serve something. Um, so that's how we, that's how we started marketing to other coffee shops and selling this as like a completely B2B, B2B product. All right. A couple of questions. First, how did this come, given that you're coming from a consulting background, I feel like sourcing is always the number one question I have with someone who completely switches and goes into. So how did, how did you go about figuring out where you would like, you know, where you'd get the right tea from, how, how you would make the formulation, just all of that? Because I imagine that was something that you've not done on that scale before, correct? No. Yeah, that was I was <laughs> like, how do you source? What does that even mean? Like, who do you need to know? Um, when we started out, um, we were just making small quantities. We were working with like 10, like it was a very side project for me. Um, for a couple of years, it went really full-time in 2018. Um, which is when we also really started like our sourcing partnership. Uh, prior to that, I knew where, I knew where my mom got tea, the Indian store. So we spent a lot of time. I would literally go to like the one Indian store, like 30 minutes outside of Portland. Um, out in like Beaverton and I, I would literally just buy all the tea they had on their shelf. Um, it, it got to the point where I was like, this isn't sustainable. It's really expensive because I'm buying this retail. Um, we need to find a source. And that's where um, I knew I wanted to get tea from Assam. 
I knew I wanted to be CTC. Um, it was a lot of asking other companies who also sourced products, who source like spices, things like that. Friends of friends, people just like in the family, like, does anybody know anybody that has a family member that maybe is like in the tea industry in India? And that's how I got a lot of kind of leads. And we went out to India and went to like a few, like a handful of um, partners and uh, people in Assam, uh, farmers in Assam. And I'd gotten samples prior, but it was really like meeting the meeting the farm, seeing how big they are. Um, can they work with us with our quantities? Because we were still pretty small. Um, and that's how we picked. I, I picked a very small to medium-sized farm that we've been working with since since 2019, early 2019, late 2018. Um, and, and that's where we get our um, organic and biodynamically farmed um, tea. And, and it's a family-owned farm. It's fourth generation. And it's great because the the two people who are kind of in the family that are kind of running things now are are two young people. And so it's great because there's a lot of transparency. I can hop on the hop hop on a call with them. I can hop on WhatsApp and ask them questions. I can also it was a great way for me to learn about the history of how, you know, specifically for them, like these farms even came into their family and um how how that kind of went. And so I, I think like it, it was very cool because it was a learning curve. I didn't know what to do. But at the same time, it taught me a lot about myself and my identity as, you know, an Indian Muslim woman and, um, you know, what what happened in India and how did this come about and what were kind of the rules and like things around it and what happened when the British left and like how did that affect the industry? So, th- yeah, that was uh, it was a struggle to figure out sourcing, but we got there. Wow. So so. So pretty much between 2015 and 2018, it was more of a, a smaller scale quasi side project. Would that would yeah. you describe it? As, so like what what at what scale was it? How many coffee shops were you in then? I think we were probably at like ten the first year, then like twenty, then thirty. Then when I went full time, we were probably at like sixty or seventy. Um, and that's where I was like, okay, this feels like this is this feels like a viable business. This feels like something we can really grow. Um, in 2020, and that's what I was imagined. I was like, okay, this is going to be like this B2B food service business, recurring revenue. This is great. Like you don't have to do much. You're using bulk packaging. Like, yes, like there's a lot of competition, but really if you have a good product, you can like stand out. Then 2020, (laughs) the pandemic happened. Um, we were literally March like 6th, I think we were in at the Javits Center in New York at a coffee trade show. Yes, we were we were at a trade show that somehow didn't get canceled. Wow. <laughs> and we it was like right on the cusp of like, this is weird. We probably shouldn't be here. I don't know what's going on. We're in New York City. Um, and but we're like, whoa, we're gonna launch in New York City this year. It's a huge market. Um, the volume is just very different from anywhere else, especially mm-hmm. Portland, which is a smaller city. Um and then we came back and all the news about Italy came out and everything shut down. All all of our customers pretty much like closed their doors. And so our business, you know, tanked immediately, went to like zero orders. Rightfully so, right? Um, and that 2020 was when um, I made the decision to focus on DTC. 
and create a new product line. And so that's where our our tea blends came from. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Was this in the DTC focus, was that already in the works in 2020? Or was it just like business has shot and now we need to go online? Prior to 2020, we had our online shop and we did sell some DTC of our concentrates, but it was super minimal. It was not something I was like really thinking about growing or anything like that. Um, our concentrates come in glass bottles. It's, 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 it's like a lot if you want to scale that DTC. Um, and the reason why we really had any DTC was because customers were going to coffee shops and they were like, I love this chai. I want to buy it for myself. I want to gift it to a friend. So we, we kind of had like a way for them to like get their hands on some chai concentrate, but it wasn't really something I was even thinking about growing in. Um, in 2020, that was when like everything tanked and it was really like, I don't know what to do now. Like, I don't know how long this will last. I don't know how, like, you know, this might be a couple of months, but this might be like way longer than that. And so either we close shop and, you know, we count our losses or we, you know, where are our customers now? Our customers are no longer at coffee shops, but they're at home and they want to learn how to do things. And so maybe this is an opportunity for me to work on products that I've always wanted to work on, but didn't have time to work on. So our customers are at home. They don't have, they don't have concentrates. Can we teach them how to make chai at home on the stove? And so I'd always wanted to launch kind of like a loose leaf um, a masala chai blend. And so I kind of was like, let's do it. Like I have the time right now. And so we launched our chai me at home blend. Um, and it was a hit and people loved it. And DTC was, you know, it was a great avenue. It was a, it was a good, um, it was a good practice for learning how to launch a product on, um, on our website. Um, and then we launched a couple other products that year. And then last year we, now we have a line of like seven or eight blends. Um, and, and so we're, we're going from there. And so, and so our focus is kind of like, 60 40 60 DTC and 40 food service because food service has come back we're just dealing with supply chain issues of course yes I can imagine um so so pretty much like just so I got the time right timeline right pretty much you know sh- wholesale shot B- b2b shot and so you you decided to try out one uh one DTC product on your website um and then from there you sort of grew that do you do you do you have the concentrate available to consumers or is it more just these um, these spice blends or these tea blends? The concentrates are still available. And, you know, that's been a little bit of a learning curve in terms of like figuring out shipping and breakage and things like that. Um, but the great thing was we had a little bit of practice with that already. So it wasn't like we like had never had an e-commerce shop before and we suddenly had to create this and learn how to do it. Um, we had had a little bit of practice. So it was, it was nice in that sense. We were just adding another product on and and now we have, we have everything. You can find our concentrates. You can find all of our tea blends. We have, you know, collaboration products, ancillary products that we sell on our website as well. And so that year we, we, I mean, our e-commerce kind of 10 X, um, and, and we got some really great press also for these new products that we launched. And so it was kind of like two things happened at once. And I was like, oh, this is really cool because I can kind of bypass this like food service scene where I can talk to my customer, but I can't talk to my end user. But now I have this like website where I can like 
now I'm like focused on email newsletters and I'm, I, I can talk to the actual end user and kind of teach them and really help them understand what OneStripe is as a company. So that was, that was really cool. And, um, and, and so now we're, we're focused on also growing that channel. So how long did that take and what kind of economic investment did that take? Because I imagine if you have no sales coming in on the B2B side and then you're like, we need to invest in completely new packaging, we need to make these smaller sized, um, and then also we need to probably pay for marketing, I imagine, or like figure out, you know, like how from beginning or I guess from start of the pandemic to launch a product, what what was that entire process like? Um, we based, so for me, it was important I didn't even get my packaging down. I mean, literally ordered pouches from Uline. Um, I had I had my recipe. It was kind of loosely based off of my mom's try recipe. I just needed to get a product out there. It was like, I just need to test if people will like this and if they'll care about it. And so we had plain white bags. We had our designer like quickly design, you know, a label that could be stuck on there that are, you know, our inspect our food inspector was like yeah this has everything you need on it this is like good to go we literally just ha- were hand um stickering them and getting this product out there before we even had our package designed so in line i was also working with our designer to like actually create like a proper package that was you know uh, printed and um had our brand aesthetic on it um but in the meantime we just kind of like soft launched these two products just put them out there um, and did some like cool, like social media promotions around them. And it it was feeling like it was a hit people really interested. So that was how we kind of like tested the market. Um, and then we're, we're, we were, I think pretty profitable at that time. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge investment. Um, we found some good partners for packaging, um, and we do we fulfill everything in house and we produce everything in house so we had a lot of we had a lot of like control over um over like how much we could produce and how much we could sell and then and then you know when we did get some like really nice press we got a bon appetit feature on our on our first masala chai um you know it was definitely a learning curve it was it was like okay we got to make a lot because there's a little bit giving a lot of traffic on our site um, but like today we've barely put any like paid ad dollars. So we're now working on like, okay, now, like, how do we like launch and like Amazon? How do we like really grow in like the marketing sense? Like how do we get some SEO behind our site? Um, we just got a brand new site. We moved to Shopify last year. Um, so we've been incrementally doing things to really like invest into DTC and, um, grow it even more. So is your emphasis to keep growing the DTC or are you also looking into other retail channels or sort of what are like now that sort of, you know, coffee shops are back open, but you also have this other channel that has grown as a result of the, of B2B going down. Where are you setting your sights in terms of the the big engine for growth? Yeah, I think our, I think like 60% of my focus is going towards DTC and 40% is still going towards B2B because B2B is still great. It's such a great place for um, cross sell. It's such a great place for customers. It's kind of free marketing, right? Like you walk into a coffee shop, 
you're somebody who orders chai, you order the chai, you're like, I really like this. You ask the barista, what kind of chai is this? Or you see a sign that says proudly serving one striped chai. Now it's kind of in your mind. You've gotten these like free eyes on, on, on this like brand name. And you know, you're at your computer later and you're like, oh, let me like search this company. I want to learn more about it. Go on their website and you're like, oh, they actually have all these other products. Cool. Somebody's birthday is coming up. I'm going to place an order and get something from here. Um, so that's a channel I definitely don't want to abandon. Food service is coming back. Um, and, and, and I think we still have a lot of growth there. We're, we're not like, you know, there's still a lot of growth that can happen there. And, and it, and it's something that I, I do really value and like, that's where we started. And so I, it's not something I want to abandon or leave. It is kind of, it reminds me of the, the, Oatly model, for lack of a better word, where like Oatly for like their few years would just go from coffee shop to coffee shop, be like, we'll give you free product. And then that was what how like people started asking for oat milk was because there were like 10 New York coffee shops that were serving it. And it feels like you're you're doing a similar sort of thing with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I hope one day we can, I don't know, like the great Oatly shortage of like, I forgot what year it was. It was, it was, it was like you walked into a coffee shop with Oatly and you like mentioned Oatly and the baristas were like, don't say Oatly. We can't let anybody else know that we have it because the other baristas will be mad that they can't get it at their shop. So with the B2B business, is it that you're, are you still specifically seeking out coffee shops or are they coming to you? Are you having to turn any down just because of supply chains, things? What's going on with all of those dynamics? Yeah, that's a great question. So it was really funny in 2020, towards like the end, the middle to the end of the year, we did start seeing B2B come back and it was great. It was like, okay, cool. Things are coming back. Like that recurring revenue is coming back. Um, And we didn't feel any supply chain issues. 2021 was when we started feeling all the supply chain issues. And I, I think it just was like, there was a bit of a lag before it kind of really hit. Um, 2021, last year, we hit a lot of like production issues, supply chain issues with like bottles, um, just like delays, not being able to get enough product made. Um, we had moved to a co-manufacturer, so we had stopped producing it in-house. Uh, which is something I always wanted to do. I've, I've, you know, I'm not a a brewer, and so I, that was something I wanted to have outsourced, especially if we were going to scale. Last year, we did have to turn down a lot of customers because of that, which was unfortunate. Um, and so this year, we're trying to like kind of work our way out of that to find a find a production partner that can really help us can scale with us, so we don't run into those issues. Um, and we've had to make like little, you know, here and there we had to make some packaging changes because, you know, temporarily like one of our packages like just wasn't available anymore. It's like a plastic shortage, um, lids, this and that. And so this year we're, I, I'm actually, I will be fundraising later this year. And so, you know, to, to really scale that part of the business out and to also scale in DTC and grow our team even more. So that's how, kind of how, where we're at. How big is the team right now? It's three of us full-time, and then we have um, three or four part-time and contractors. Got it. And so what's the the physical retail? Are you in any retail shops or like how are, so and how have you been how has that been going and are you going to be focusing on that at all or looking for like would you do you want to work with like Whole Foods or or you know be on a T section there? What Yeah, that's a great question. That is definitely somewhere I want to be. So we are we are in retail um in the Pacific Northwest and you know chains like New Seasons and Market of Choice if you remember from Portland. Um and then 
lat was it early 2021 we launched in LA so we're in Erewhon market um Opportunity market so some smaller chains we haven't really gone into like the big stuff yet and that was because like that was when like the supply chain kind of uh, issues kind of started. So I wanted to kind of halt and be like, I don't want to overpromise anything until we have product. Now that we're starting to like get out of that a little bit, one of my focuses this year is, you know, we do, we do want to grow in retail. I would love for our concentrates to be at Whole Foods. More than that, I would love our concentrates to be the concentrates that are used at the coffee shops at Whole Foods. Um, so something that's also like kind of Fun and interesting is if you remember Market of Choice in Portland um, or in Oregon, they have like 12 or 13 locations. Every single shop has a cafe in it. And so we launched on their grocery aisle, which was great. Um, but great groceries, like it's a good spot, but it's like not like it's hard because ha- the concentrate plate, the concentrate shelf is low. It's, you know, it's not as, it's not the same as like being in the tea section. Cause that's where you have all your loose leaves, but we have our, all the coffee shops are using our chai. So we have, it's a great cross sell opportunity for the grocery store. So we're able to say, Hey, you, you can move some of that retail product right next to the shelf at the cafe. So you can tell your customers that buy our chai a lot. Hey, you can also buy this bottle along with it. And so we're trying to find kind of way, unique ways that we can make it exciting and, um, fun and like profit, you know, just a good product for, um, grocery. Um, and then also I'm trying to incorporate all of our blends into grocery this year. It was harder when we had one or two SKUs. Now we have a lot more, so it's a little bit more like manageable to be like, Hey, it's not just going to be one lonesome product that nobody knows. We now have like a whole line of them and they're beautiful and they're bright and it's great packaging. So I want to ask you, because you mentioned, uh, Oh my gosh, I can't remember the name. Not New Seasons, the other Oregon market that I've been to. <laughs> um, market of choice. Market of choice, yes. But let, let's talk about Erewhon because I'm uh, I'm so interested in uh, startup brands in Erewhon. And especially like yours is interesting because you're not – I feel like the the conversation around Erewhon is that if you are a ready-to-drink like, like beverage, you'll see the Erewhon effect. You'll be in their glass case and then, you know – interest will increase and sales will increase, but you're, you're like not there and you're this sort of, you're not in the loose leaf aisle, you're in the concentrate. So have you noticed an Erewhon effect? Does it not exist in these other aisles? What, what has been your overall experience? That's a good question. Um, I think, so the Erewhon effect that I have seen and only because I think it was like a weird timing because then things, you know, we were having production issues. So it was, we weren't able to like, re, we haven't been able to really market as hard as we want to at Erewhon. But the effect I have seen and that I saw really early on, uh, as soon as we launched in there, was that Erewhon allows you to get your product into the hands of people that can influence others to buy your products. And and I think more than talking, it it probably hasn't happened for us in terms of volume. Um, But seeing so many, I mean, there were so many days where we suddenly had like a crazy like uptick in sales. And I would go back and be like, where's this coming from, right? It's always coming from somewhere. Was it press that we got? Was Was it an influencer? And almost always for a while, especially if it was like LA, like the LA area, it was because an influencer picked up our product and posted about it. Someone we didn't know, someone I had never even heard of. Um, 
and had just mentioned that like, oh, I got this and I'm using this. I'm making a dirty chai or whatever. And suddenly getting this uptake. And I had never experienced that in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And I think that's because I would say like that's been our Erewhon effect thus far. Um, You know, I do have plans to eventually launch a ready to drink. Um, And so we'll see how that how that goes. I think right now the ready to drink market is really hot and really competitive. And so I almost want to wait a little bit and make sure the products are really intentional and like the R&D is really, you know, it, that that's not somewhere where I'm like, we just launch something and see what happens. Like, no, we like got to be really intentional and make sure the products are perfect. And additionally, I also, you know, chai is kind of our first step. So one stripe chai is kind of becoming a little more of a South Asian beverage company versus just a chai company. And so there's so many other beverages within like the realm of South Asia um, that that don't even exist on our shelves. And so really, I want to focus on bringing a lot of those out and and highlighting them, um, whether that's in ready to drink or that's like a loose leaf blend. Um, and so that that's also on our radar for this year and next year as we fundraise. Um, is how do we how do we create more flavors? Chai happened to be one that you know the West is already accustomed to, but how do we bring other drinks um, like Haldi Dude, which is something we launched last year or in 2020, which is basically turmeric milk. And so you know this idea of like golden milk and you know uh, turmeric lattes. Well, how do we kind of like own that and say like, hey, this this is an Indian drink. Like, let, let's call it healthy food. Like, let's package it. Let's talk about like, you know, its history. Where did it come from? And, and when we launched that, people really, really loved it. Um, we launched a mango tea last year. And so we're kind of stepping out of just chai and just doing like different versions of chai or different types of chai and stepping into like, how do we do other products that are, um, that fall under this like beverage brand umbrella. Uh, and so, and that's so where my focus is also going to be. And I I hope like Erewhon can be like a key player there because I I see that happening, especially with RTD. Yeah. I I bet you that's a great place to test out RTD or to see if it resonates. Um, we're just about almost out of time. Um, but this has been, we've gotten so many directions. It's been so great, but I wanted to, and you sort of hinted at this, but I just love to get some like, you know, concrete answers Um, in terms of, you know, you said at least 60% of your energy this year will be focused on DTC. What exactly does that mean? Or is it, is it all product expansion? Is it, so what are the sort of big goals that you have for the rest of the year? Um, Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. No, that's a great question. Absolutely. Product expansion. We just launched on Shopify. So like really figuring out like, how do we, how do we maximize, how do we optimize being on Shopify? Um, how do we make sure we have, um, you know, paid social SEO? Um, how do we make sure that like people are coming to our website and really like looking to us as being like the chai brand, investing in like better editorial, um, packaging for all of our products, photography, marketing, like you name it, um, you know, kind of professionalizing our professionalizing everything a little bit, because I think we have kind of run like a little bit like a small business in the past. And now it's really about, no, how do we scale this? How do we, how do we kind of professionalize our like photography and our storytelling and things like that? And so um, launching on Amazon, launching on other, like other kind of third party DTC, um, sites and then 
you know, how do we work with affiliates and how do we create a brand ambassador program? So those, those are the things I'm focusing on in terms of DTC. Got it. Does that, an- All- does that answer your question? Okay. Absolutely answers my question. That was exactly what I wanted to know. Um, Farah, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week. Thank you.